You're listening to 3CR Radio. Placebo there, Nancy Boy. It's 10 past four. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James and MV. On the line, we have veteran LGBTIQ activist Rodney Croom to talk about the religious freedom debate in Australia and the leaked Ruddick report. Welcome, Rodney. Hi, James. Thanks for having me on. It's a great pleasure. Uh, first of all, have you seen the leaked Ruddick report? I've seen, uh, I've seen parts of the report mm. that have been leaked and the recommendations that were made, particularly in regards to faith-based schools and I was quite disappointed that the authors of the report didn't recommend prohibiting discrimination against students and teachers and faith-based organisations. My disappointment of course is because I live in a state where that kind of discrimination has been prohibited for 20 years. Uh, LGBTI teachers and students in faith-based schools and hospitals and any faith-based organisation already have those protections and it's just always disappointing for me to see federal or national reports or reports in other states falling below that standard. Now, the authors of the report, I think, they, I think they, were do, they think they were doing a good job because they recommended slightly tightening up the exemptions a, a little bit, uh, making it necessary for the schools, for instance, to tell prospective parents that they have these exemptions and that, that they are able to discriminate. And I think they saw that as a step forward. But I think if you if you look at the debate that's happened since the report was leaked, a majority of Australians just have moved way beyond that. They do not think this kind of discrimination is right, either against students or teachers. They really want it to come to an end. And I think that wave of public indignation has been what's resulted in the in the federal government actually saying, yeah, well, actually, we'll try and do something about it. What has the Prime Minister ruled in and out regarding the Ruddock Report? Because he seems to be flip-flopping a little bit post-Wentworth uh, by-election. Yes, well, you're right. Before the Wentworth by-election, uh, the government was very keen to get headlines <laughs> that said that it would stop gay students being, being expelled from faith-based schools. Uh, and, that, and that looked great, because no-one wants that. And not even the schools want that. So even the schools were saying, oh, we really don't want that exemption. <laughs> we don't want to be kicking gay kids out of the classroom. But since the Wentworth election and since uh, the sort of the political imperative there has disappeared, the desire for the government to win votes in that fairly socially progressive seat, we've seen details of the government's legislation and it's not nearly as good as those headlines would suggest. Uh, First of all, it's limited to students. It's not about teachers as well. And while the government would prohibit discrimination on the grounds of sexual orientation or gender identity, it's saying that the school, the school should still be able to discriminate uh, on the grounds of their ethos and their religious susceptibilities and their religious values, and, and the list goes on to such an extent where you really wonder, well, it feels like you're giving with one hand and taking with the other because, of course, it would be quite easy for, the, for a school to say, well, it's not because you're gay, it's just because, you know, the fact that you want to take your part, same-sex partner to the school social or formal or whatever is against the Bible or... Or, you know, it's not that you're trans, it's just that you want to wear the clothes of the other sex. <laughs> so there's too much wiggle room here when it comes to, to, to continuing
continued discrimination. And and I think more and more people are seeing this. Certainly LGBTI groups are. And we really need to be saying to the government and to the Labor Party and to the crossbench in the Mm. Senate, this doesn't go far enough. These students uh, need stronger protections and really the staff need protections too. Because what's the point of saying to a student, well, we're not going to discriminate against you because you're gay, but we've just thrown your teacher out because she is. What kind of message does that send? Rodney, so despite the backlash, the government's still committed to legislating in this area? The federal government said it will move forward with its bill, despite the, the growing concerns, but I'm hopeful that the concerns will, will grow loud enough that it will think twice. And if it doesn't think twice, then at least Labor were, and the crossbench will attempt to amend the bill in the Senate. What um, um, commitments has seeing, the community been given from the crossbenchers in the Senate and in the House of Reps regarding uh, supporting the LGBTI community in relation to this bill? I know, for instance, Karen Phelps has been very strident in her opposition. Yeah, well, Karen's pretty strong uh, on this issue because she, you know, as a, as a former president of the AMA, she's aware of the you know the health impacts of this kind of discrimination, and uh, she's been an advocate against similar exemptions for faith-based schools in New South Wales. And I think my, you know, my member, federal member Andrew Wilkie, has been a strong supporter of LGBTI human rights, as has obviously Adam Bant. So uh, I think those crossbenchers will um, will get will get this. Because you'd be thinking, on, you'd be thinking, Rodney, that possibly this wouldn't even pass the House of Reps the way the numbers are stacked up. Uh, and possibly not, possibly not. And that's why Labor's stance on this is so important. Mm, absolutely. Um, and the jitters, the the jitters here are that. Uh, uh, we've had some members of the Catholic right in the Labor Party, like uh, Senators Inter Collins, stand up and say that faith-based schools should have uh, a positive right to be able to discriminate on the grounds of religious ethos. And not only does that sort of, as I said before, give with one hand and take with the other, but in my state, for instance, where I mentioned before that these exemptions don't, don't exist, it would actually roll back the protections that people already have. Mm. Uh, because a positive right in federal law would be inconsistent with the uh, protections in the State Act and override the State Act. So that, to me, is abhorrent that in an attempt to try and protect kids in faith schools, we actually, uh, in some states, we actually take away their protection in others. Mm. Um, federal legislation needs to rise to the highest standard rather than sink down to the lowest common denominator, and that's the message we need beginning across to later. Now, I think there are already groups mobilising to do that, I know Rainbow Families in Victoria have been very active. They've been in Canberra already uh, lobbying Labor politicians on this point, as has um, the Human Rights Law Centre, uh, the Equality Campaign. Uh, again, here in Tassie, I know uh, I've been out meeting with all of our federal Labor members to reinforce to them that, that um, the importance of maintaining a high standard. Uh, and it's great to see that in the ACT, the uh, government there uh, has, has introduced... Uh, legislation to actually get rid of the exemptions they have to bring their laws up to a higher standard, uh, like the same standard as Tasmania. So that, again, sends a message to federal Labor, because uh, that's a Labor government in the ACT, sends a message to federal the federal Labor that it needs to maintain a high standard on this, um, that it's not, it's not going to help anyone if they pass the bare minimum reform that the government's talking about. It might actually make things worse. Rodney, is there anything positive in the Ruddick report for the LGBTI community? And if so, what is it? Um, one of the, like I said, the authors of the report 
Mm. I think we're doing us a favour by trying to tighten up the exemptions a bit. But I don't think they've really grasped that public opinion post the postal survey last year, after you know, one year on from marriage equality, that Australians have really moved on from this and they just there is very limited tolerance for legally allowed discrimination, particularly if it's in the name of religion. Which is amazing, um, isn't it, considering only 13 electorates voted against uh, marriage equality. It's incredible they haven't got the message. Yes, yes, I think in their minds that that decision, the yes vote, was limited to just the issue of marriage. But I don't think they've really grasped that after 14 years of debating that issue of marriage equality, not just 14 weeks, but 14 years, Australians have moved on to a position where no discrimination, no legally allowed discrimination against LGBTI people is acceptable anymore, including by faith-based organisations. So you have the uh, the right wing, if you like, of the Liberal Party who are banging on about religious freedom, importing a narrative about that from the United States, from the Republican Party there, which is all about rolling back existing protections against LGBTI people in the name of so-called religious freedom. I don't think that's real religious freedom. Real religious freedom is is where people don't face disadvantage or discrimination because of their religion. Here we're talking about people being discriminated against in the name of religion. That's not religious freedom. That's religious dominance, religious privilege. So we had the right wing of the Liberal Party banging on about that and the overwhelming majority of Australians saying, no, absolutely not. We will not countenance that. We've moved on from that. Every single opinion poll, no matter who does it, on these issues of the existing exemptions being got rid of, as we started to talk, as we were talking about before, or, or new provisions put in place that allow discrimination in the name of religious freedom, Australians just don't buy it. It's like seventy to eighty percent opposition. Rodney, what are moderates within the coalition telling you about the Ruddock report? Can we expect civil war to break out within the coalition once the Victorian state election is done and dusted? My understanding of the situation in the coalition is that there are quite deep divisions over this issue. There are moderates who understand, like I said before, that that religious freedom, as valuable as it is, shouldn't come at the cost of discrimination protections. But uh, they're keeping a lid on those divisions at the moment. Uh, I think it's more about it's partly about the Victorian election, but partly also about giving the new prime minister uh, a bit of a what's the term they use? Clean air. Like clean air, yeah, yeah, bit of space to establish himself uh, without the party falling apart. <laughs> so I'm not sure what the result of that would be. I'm not sure that there are moderates who are willing to stand up at this stage. Certainly not on the issue of teachers, possibly on the issues of trying to provide stronger protections for kids in religious schools. But I don't think teachers. I hope I'm wrong, but really uh, at the moment. The desire to maintain a united front seems to be the top priority. Rodney, it's been a year since the postal survey result was announced. Uh, how do you look back on the campaign? What What are your thoughts on the campaign? What issues come up for you? Well, James, I was you were at the centre of it, pretty heavily involved, as you know. Mm. Yeah, and so I have a lot. There's, there's a lot of reflections. Mm. I mean. Obviously, I've been to some beautiful weddings this year that would not have occurred had that reform not happened. Um, and um, so I feel so privileged on each occasion to be asked to those weddings and to myself begin to plan my own wedding for next year. And like I said, I can see that as a result of all these debates over many years, Australia has fundamentally changed for the better. 
and that's in the end what matters most. But uh, I still cannot, I cannot leave behind, and I will never leave behind. I think my reservations about how we got there. In the end, I I don't believe that the ends justify the means. The means being the postal survey. I still come across people, particularly young trans people, but others as well, who were deeply scarred by that and may never recover. And I still come across examples of, you know, I still encounter people who lost loved ones because they killed themselves. I mean, and that's a fact. And so I, I will never reconcile myself to that. And I don't think I will ever reconcile myself either to what I believe was probably the wrong approach on behalf of sort of the Yes campaign uh, in terms of trying to make marriage equality a small target and not directly addressing the fear campaign from the, from the no side. So much of that fear-mongering was left, uh, left out there and not responded to, and so many LGBTI people, particularly the vulnerable ones, felt undefended and, to use their phrase, thrown under the bus. Mm. I think it would have been possible for... I know it was possible for the Equality Campaign and the Yes campaign to directly address, directly engage with the with those with those negative narratives about LGBTI people, uh, and to turn them around into um, a positive for us that would have actually built the equality narrative and built the yes vote. So I think there was a deep and grave strategic error that was made, and I'm happy to say to you now that was that was one of the reasons that I left in 2016 because I could see that was the direction that was taking. And I have devoted my whole career doing this stuff, the 30 years this year, to always, always tackling prejudice when it appears. Never angrily, never, um, never negatively. I believe firmly in always having a positive response to prejudice, but you must respond. You cannot let it go. The fact that it was let go during that period, I think, has resulted, like I said before, in a lot of harm, unnecessary harm that was done to vulnerable LGBTI people and their friends and family. And also has left us left us in the midst of these debates about safe schools and religious freedom and transgender rights. I think we would be a lot further down the track on those three if we dealt with them a year, two years or even three years ago, if we'd made the decision as a community to stand up to them. In Tasmania, uh, when the postal survey was on, we did stand up to them. We actually had social media material out there and mainstream media material saying, you know, that's wrong and this is why it's wrong and this is, in fact, what the situation is. And reminding people that the sky didn't fall in when we got decriminalisation of homosexuality uh, 20 years ago, which many people still remember, and it won't fall in now. And that didn't hurt the campaign. In fact, Tasmania scored the highest death vote of any state after Victoria. So responding to hate... Uh, is possible, responding to hate in a way that actually builds the quality narrative is possible. It's happened. We've seen it before. I just feel so sad that we didn't do that nationally last year. Ronnie Krim, thank you so much for talking to us today on 3CR. It's always wonderful to hear your voice on the airwaves and thank you so much for all your fantastic work over the last 30 years supporting the community and no doubt you'll be doing it for at least another 30 more. <laughs> well... I hope so, James. <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see about that, but I appreciate you having me on. No worries. Until next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You're listening to 
3CR Radio. Well, Thorn Harbour Health, Positive Women Victoria and Living Positive Victoria have released a manifesto with 27 recommendations to improve the lives of people living with HIV in the lead-up to Victoria's state election. Recently, they held a forum to enable the major political parties in Victoria to respond to their, their action plan. On the line, we have Simon Ruth from Thorn Harbour Health. Welcome to 3CR, Simon. Uh, good day, Jane. Thanks for having me. Great pleasure. Who showed up at the forum and what commitments did they make towards uh, people living with HIV, if any commitments? Uh, so we, at the forum we had Minister Hennessy, Jill Hennessy. We had the Shadow Minister, Mary Wooldridge. Uh, Fiona Patton, the leader of the Reason Party, was there and the Greens health spokesperson, Nina Springles. They were the only people who were invited, so they all did turn up. Uh, and we also had 60 people in the room, which was a mix of people across our three organisations and other people affected by HIV. Um, we had a series of questions. We had an MC for the evening and then there was an opportunity from some people to ask questions from the floor as well. As far as commitments go, um, Mary Wooldridge made commitments to, which is directly out of our, our call, to meet the 95-95-95 target five years earlier at 2025 and she also made a commitment to establishing a mobile pronto service to get uh, rapid HIV testing out into the outer suburbs and into rural and regional Victoria. Um, The Greens made a commitment to $5 million for a business case to look at Melbourne's sexual health infrastructure. Fiona Patton from Reason committed to uh, attempting to decriminalise sex work in all of its forms and was very strong on that. And Labor committed to maintaining Pronto because Pronto is currently still a pilot project, but Labor has released a strategy recently and so for them it was about committing to delivering that strategy. What funding commitments would Thorn Harbour like from the major parties, particularly uh, from Labor and the Liberals? Uh, Look, we've got 27 recommendations. (laughs) Um, It's hard to pick and choose, but, you know, there's some key ones there, like um, PrEP prep has been an amazing advance and and we're seeing HIV rates drop in uh, not only in Australia but in many major cities where PrEP's been made available. Um, But HIV is a contagious disease, and and so to properly impact on HIV, you need to make sure the PrEP is available to everyone who needs it. And one of the key issues we have is that there's a lot of people living in Melbourne and and other major cities around Australia who are Medicare ineligible, and and that really pushes the price of PrEP out of of their ability to purchase it and, and access it. Uh, They can import it, but that gets a lot harder. And and so then one of the real issues is that you've still got a group of people who are at risk of contracting HIV, which could easily be prevented. And then that risk poses a broader risk to the community uh, because you're not addressing it as early as you possibly could. So that's one key that we would have liked to have seen. Um, And they all took that on advice, but it's quite a complex issue, you know, around visas and and um, you know Medicare and, and intergovernment relations and those sorts of things. Another one is Melbourne Sexual Health, which is our major sexual health provider, is has doubled the number of people it sees in 10 years without any extra funding, and it's basically crippled under the number of people who are accessing it. Similarly, uh, we have four or five other major testing sites. If you're part of the LGBTI community, um, including Pram Market, Northside, our Centre Clinic, and Pronto, and they are all struggling to meet need. Prep again has been an amazing advance, but it's put an an undue amount of pressure onto all of those services so it's very hard to get into them now to get your HIV meds or just to get tested for HIV if you're not part of the PrEP trials. Has the Andrews Um, government given you any indicators that it will in fact increase the funding for the Melbourne Sexual Health Centre? I mean that seems to be a no-brainer. Did Jill Hennessy at your forum give any indication that they will address that issue? Uh, No. You must have been disappointed with that. that 
yeah, they didn't give any it's any, any indication that they would address it. And, and it's part of the Alfred Health, so it actually is a government service. But I'm aware it's something that they're all looking at, and it's certainly something the opposition have raised in Parliament on more than one occasion. Uh, we know that in Sydney they have 27 sexual health centres, which are all much smaller than what we have in Melbourne, but their 27 are about double the size of what we have here, um, even though the size of the cities are, are reasonably comparable. And then if you go outside to your average family GP, um, they often don't know what they're doing around sexual health screening. And one of the other calls in our guide is that if you're doing a sexual health screen, HIV should always be part of the screen. Uh, we hear lots of stories, particularly from women, who say, I went to my GP, I asked for a sexual health screen, he didn't give me a HIV screen, and then it took me five years to discover that I was HIV positive because my GP thought I didn't look like the sort of person who would have HIV. So th there's also some policy areas where we'd love to see government say, if you're doing a sexual health screen, always make sure HIV is part of that screen. Simon, how would you rate the policy position of the Andrews government and the Matthew Guy opposition in relation to people living with HIV policy and service provision. Uh, are, they, are they close are they, or are they light years apart? How would you rate them? I, I need to be careful. As a, running a charity, I'm not allowed to endorse either side of politics. Really? Um, and, that, and, the, and the federal government, yes, uh, the federal government has, since uh, the marriage equality debate, they've instituted new laws federally where I actually have to report on the political work that this organisation does um, soon, and we have to report financially how much we spend on that, and it's targeting. It's more targeting GetUp and, and the big players. So if you um, um, answer the was... question, you've got to basically let, let Scott Morrison's people know. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's a hard it's question for me to answer. Yeah, um, you know, Matt Canavan did call for this organisation to be defunded during the marriage equality debate because we had taken a hard yes position and we were raising funds for marriage equality for campaigning. Um, so there was a call to defund us at that point. But to answer your question, look, in Victoria, we've always had very strong bipartisan support. We're probably unique nationally uh, with the strength of, of the support we've had from both sides of politics all the way through. Um, they, we do have a strategy that both sides have committed to the strategy. It's about how they, they get to the end goal. So um, Labor is committing to delivering on the strategy and, and the priorities in that, and I'm part of government committees that work on that. The Libs who are a bit more removed from that uh, have been picking bits and pieces out of the strategy to talk about in their election commitments. Um, something like expanding Pronto isn't necessarily in the strategy, but it, it's certainly something uh, that, that we would love to see from either side of politics. Simon, what are some of the major funding gaps in Victoria regarding women living with HIV? I know that's an issue that's often overlooked. Um, yeah, so women, it, it gets incredibly difficult and much more expensive to target much smaller populations of, you know, we're, we've been incredibly fortunate in Australia that we have contained HIV largely and, and Australia is leading the way. We're one of the few countries in the world that is actually has the end of HIV in sight, um, but we've managed to contain that to largely gay and bisexual men and other men who have sex with men, but we still have 10 to 15% of people who contract HIV are heterosexual injecting drug users um, and heterosexual women largely. Um, and, and so we have a whole service sector designed around men who have sex with men and we have prevention campaigns that target men who have sex with men. And so, But we have these small groups that um, need to be considered in when we're offering services. In Victoria, we are fortunate to have positive women in Victoria, so we are the only state in Australia that funds um, an organisation to look specifically at the needs of women who have HIV. And, and how we do prevention, we, we really need to start looking at maybe travel prevention, getting messages across to um, young people who are 
travelling overseas, particularly to certain parts of the world that HIV is a risk, you need to be considering that when, when you're overseas. Um, other areas, you know, such as prisons, we need to be doing more about prisons and putting condoms and clean needles into prisons and ensuring that, um, you know, that, that is a point where HIV can spread into the community. But as far as women go, you know, stigma as well for women is, is something quite different. They play different roles in the community than mothers. They, If they're heterosexual, as, as gay men, we sort of understand what HIV means. Uh, we've probably got friends who are HIV positive. You know, it's part of our life every day. It's something we often think about. For the heterosexual community, it's not like that. And so for a heterosexual woman to come out to her family or her employer or her friends as HIV positive is a much more difficult process because she is dealing with relationships where everybody still thinks it's 1985 and the Grim Reaper's rolling a ball down a bowling alley, whereas I think gay men have a bit more perspective and we understand undetectable equals untransmittable and we understand the preps out there and we understand that it's, it's a very different world to what it was 30 years ago. It's pretty amazing then that Victoria's the only state that has a funded service for people living, for women living with HIV, considering the importance of of peer support to address those issues around stigma you just mentioned. Yeah, yeah, it's it's unique in Victoria. There is a national network of women called Femme Fatales, uh, which is run by the, the one of the national peaks, uh, the National Association of People Living with HIV. Um, but Victoria is the only one that actually puts money into that and has done so for 20 years. And um, Positive Women Victoria um, had their 30-year anniversary this year, as did Living Positive Victoria. Simon, your report also addresses stigma and discrimination towards the living with HIV community. You just talked about the massive issues for women. What are some of your key recommendations regarding addressing stigma and discrimination towards people living with HIV? You know, stigma is an incredibly difficult area to manage. I mean, we can talk about what to do around testing and we can talk about what to do around treatment and we, we can talk about what to do about increasing sector capacity. But stigma, you are you are still trying to deal with people who saw that ad 25 years ago and and that's still how they think of AIDS. And, and then internalised stigma, people being too ashamed and embarrassed that they have this virus that is really no fault of their own and it was just a roll of the dice that they got it. Uh, so there's worldwide, when, when you go to the other cities who are doing well, such as San Francisco and London and Toronto and New York, everybody struggles with stigma. It's, it's just one of those issues that we really um, do struggle to, to figure out how to manage it. I, I think one of the key things is people need to come out as HIV positive. The more people who are publicly out, uh, the more normalised it will become and it will change people's perception of what it means to be HIV positive. But to do that, we actually have to build the resilience of people living with HIV to have the courage um, to be able to do that. And, you know, we have to create leadership within that community. And so one of one of our calls was to support the Positive Leadership Development Institute, which is a network of people who do leadership training as people living with HIV and, and to, to teach them to speak about their HIV and to take on roles in the community, um, which, you know, would promote them as people living with HIV and show that they're no different to anyone else. Um, there's also the option of doing stigma campaigns. And, and we have seen a few stigma campaigns in Australia. Um, we've actually got one that's just about to go into cinemas across Victoria in the next couple of weeks um, that talks about the fact that people living with HIV are just like you and me. They are no different to anyone else in the community. Who funded that campaign? Um, it's, it's funded as part of our state-funded campaign work. So there's the same funding that funds Drama Down Under um, and the other campaigns that we run. So last year we did one called HIV Still Matters and, and this year it's still HIV Still Matters but the cinema advertising campaign is going to be different and have a stronger stigma focus. Your manifesto also focuses on tobacco use among the living with HIV community. How high are smoking rates among the POLS community? Um, you know, for, for LGBT people, we use all drugs at higher rates than the rest of the community. Our smoking rates 
um, are still pretty terrible. They're, we're over double the rate of general community. Um, and then when you get down to certain parts of our community, it gets even higher still. Um, and people living with HIV smoke at incredibly high rates as well. Um, and, and you are more likely to die from your smoking than you are from your HIV. So... Uh, and we know we know that people living with HIV, particularly as they age, are much more susceptible to a range of other conditions and, and potentially cancers. And we know that to, uh, nicotine use can actually cause a lot of those cancers. So um, trying to tackle smoking amongst people living with HIV is a bit of a no-brainer if we want to assist them to live longer and live healthy lives. Uh, and we don't really have any effective campaigns out there currently. People living with HIV also have to pay their co-payments on all their drugs. Um, you know, this is a contagious virus and people taking their treatments are actually protecting the entire community, yet they're met with the burden of having to pay the extra Medicare payments for those drugs. And then add on top of that, uh, the, you know, fees associated with taking Shampix and Zyban and some of those smoking-related drugs as well, it starts to get expensive. So, so part of our call was to look at ways to provide nicotine replacement therapies and the other nicotine treatments to, to this community at an effective price. Are stigma and discrimination the key drivers behind the high smoking rates of people living with HIV, do you think? I don't know. That's, um, that's a really interesting point of research. Uh, I think in our communities, in LGBTI communities, certainly you know, stigma and homophobia probably do pay, play a bit of a role in why we smoke and drink at, at excessive rates. Um, maybe that does play a role in why people with HIV don't give up at, at the same rates as the rest of the community. I will take that question on notice, James, and I will put that one to a tribunal when I talk to them next time. Simon, the writs for the state election haven't been served yet. Uh, we're expecting them to be served on Monday or Tuesday of next week. That will mean the, the campaign proper is underway. Are you expecting Jill Hennessy to come out, say, in week two or three of the campaign and, and make some big announcements uh, about HIV uh, for the state election? Um, Are your sources telling you anything? No. No, they're not. Uh, you know, we we do incredibly well to get our message out there and, and you know, just getting the four of them to turn up to an event. We're, we're not a high priority in, in the state health system when they're committing $1.5 billion to hospitals. And to well, run, you are in, a, in uh, an electorate like Paran, for example, which in, is marginal and they want to win it back. Yeah. Want to win it back. Yeah. yeah, in an electorate like Paran we are and. Um, we certainly have had been contacted by all three of the candidates of the major parties over there, and they're mm. all very um, well aware of our issues, and, and not only our HIV issues, but also the LGBTI book that we did. Um, all three of them are, are well across that. Um, also some others, maybe like Albert Park and Brunswick and Richmond, some of those seats. Um, people are much more interested in these issues. I would love to hear a major commitment from Minister Hennessy, um, and certainly Minister uh, Shadow Minister Waldridge is, is pushing out her commitments and has, has been doing so over the last week. Simon Ruth, uh, always great to talk to you. Thanks heaps for chatting to us today on 3CR. It's been great talking to Thank you. Thank you, James. Cheers. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.